Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Yo, yo, welcome to episode 53 of Stay Grounded. Hope you guys are having a fantastic day. I know I am. I love this time of the year. (laughs) December is just my favorite month. This is the month where I actually sit back and just reflect on everything that went well in the year, everything that didn't, what I want moving forward and make changes and grow. And so it's my favorite time of the year. It's the holidays. Everybody's kind of wrapping things up. And I hope you guys are appreciating everything right now and just enjoying life. I mean, 2018 moved by so fast. And I feel like if we don't take time to actually appreciate and reflect and be present, then life is going to fly by very fast because I feel like this year was lightning speed. (laughs) So super excited for 2019. But anyways, this week's guest is Mr. Ian Stanley. So Ian is a man of many talents. Uh, he's a stand-up comedian. He's a filmmaker. He uh, he does everything. I mean, honestly, he's considered to be one of the best copywriters in the world. And to give you context, Ian has sold over $100 million worth of products online in the past few years. So he's a very seasoned entrepreneur with a very, very, very seasoned set of skills that he has used to create material success. And over the years, you know, one thing that Ian realized is that Everything comes down. Most business problems, once you get to a certain level of skill, aren't really business problems. They're actually emotional and personal problems. And he realized this after he went to an event for himself that was hosted by a licensed psychotherapist named Brent Charlton. After he went into one of those sessions, he walked out with literally every single block that he's ever had removed. And essentially what I loved, and and I loved Ian, I love Ian, one, just because He went into that experience, realized that this needed to help more people. So he partnered with Brent to create the Lionheart Workshop. And the Lionheart Workshop is a few-day intensive where people essentially go in and come back out healing and moving through a lot of the emotional and personal blocks that they have from keeping them from getting the things they want, whether it's strong relationships or more money or business success, or just whatever it is, what a confidence can be any level of things. But essentially, Brent and Ian both work together to uh, help entrepreneurs work on the deeper inner issues that are holding them back. And so I love what Ian is up to today. And I had to have him on the show just because I've seen an incredible difference in just the way he personally maneuvers. I mean, I've known Ian for the past few years. And He used to be a very, very, very shrewd businessman who was all about skills, 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 money, 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 money. And then he went into this experience and he came back a whole new man. (laughs) And so when I see entrepreneurs putting themselves through these levels of growth, it inspires me. And that was really what made me want to have Ian here. And we talk about everything, everything from, you know, the difference between awareness therapy and application therapy, which is what Lionheart is the concept of your inner teen and what really motivates us, what 
fear, what emotions we feel when we're getting blocked and we can't actually go where we want to go. And I mean, we went down so many rabbit holes around building self-awareness, healing trauma, moving through pain, growing through growth, feeding the, the good wolf and the bad wolf. And sometimes when you need to feed both. And there was so much fruit that came from this one conversation with Ian that I'm just so excited for you guys to experience. And um, if you guys are interested in Lionheart, you can check out the website, what they're all about, lionheartworkshop.com. But all in all, this episode was chock full of so many insights that are purely there for no other reason than to explore how we can all move past the emotional and personal problems to actually create the realities that we want in our lives. I mean, I've realized this along the way. After a certain point, it's not that you can't make money. It's not that you can't be successful. You're going to be successful. But in order to get to the next level, there's always a pattern that's running in your head that you need to get through because what got you to one place isn't necessarily going to get you to the next one. And so this idea of growth coming from dealing with your emotional, personal problems is so empowering because to me, it gives me this, this feeling and this idea that everything we are experiencing is a function of a story we've been telling ourselves forever. And once we realize what that story is, we can actually change the story. But that's the first step is understanding that the story exists and understanding that these stories are the reasons you are creating the realities you're creating. So I am beyond excited for this episode. Can't wait for you guys to dive in and just experience the goodness and awesomeness that is Mr. Ian Stanley. But before we do that, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, which means that you'll just you won't have to go and actually download the episode. It'll just drop in your podcast app or whatever you use every single week that we release an episode. Join the Stay Grounded community. Go to rajana.com forward slash stay grounded to get involved in post-podcast discussions and ask questions directly to me or any of our guests that are in the group. And really just have fun. Remember to appreciate everything. And whether you're going through pain, trauma, you're super happy, wherever you are right now, just appreciate it because... I think when you look back on life, you're going to realize that time flies faster than you really believe it does. So anyways, I'm going to now pass on the torch to my friend, Mr. Ian Stanley. So enjoy, guys. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to another episode of Stay Grounded. Super excited, man, to have uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Ian Stanley. How you doing, man? I'm great. Happy to be here. I am excited to have you here uh, just because, one, you're a man of many talents, and two, one conversation with you got me wanting to do stand-up comedy. So that should precursor this conversation for where it's going to head. I'm excited. I'll always talk about stand-up. Yeah. <laughs> heading and looking at my dog right now just so it doesn't look like he's just decided to come up to me. So I'm in yes. my kitchen, like I said, hence the weird view my studio has a patchy internet at the moment so no that's okay i'm just glad i get to dive into your mind man um so lots to talk about and i'm gonna dive right in just because i already introed you and all the boring stuff in the details but you know when i think about your life you've done a lot entrepreneur and you've been by conventional means pretty successful why did you feel like you needed a therapist huh well i guess i don't really think of brent as a therapist it was more like I mean, cause he, he's technically, he's, you know, he is a licensed psychotherapist, but what he does isn't therapy. He left the therapy world because it didn't work. Therapy is basically, for the most part, gives you awareness. 
And for him, that wasn't enough. It's basically like having conversations with people and the other therapists be like, cool, we figured out what's wrong with them. Now what? And they're like, but we don't do anything. We just keep talking to them every week. And he just wasn't okay with that. So he started his own way of doing things and ended up basically taking the awareness and bringing an application piece so that people can actually move through the blocks as opposed to just be aware of them. But when I went, it was actually my girlfriend at the time. She had worked with him quite a bit and she talked about him. And the way she talked about him was just really intriguing. But when I went into it, I thought it was just going to be another thing. Like, oh, it's just another workshop, another, you know, event that I'm going to. I got all sorts of masterminds and events. This is just going to be another thing. I actually we've talked about it because I showed up 45 minutes late, which I've never been that late for anything. It was me and just two other people. He almost was like, just gonna not let me in. And I'm the only person who didn't do a call with him beforehand and stuff for the original, like the, the way he used to do the intensives with one to three people at a time. And I just showed up kind of like, all right. And then within three hours, I was like, holy shit, this is my life's not going to be the same. It was just like how, and then I was angry the first night. I'm like, why didn't I know this? How is this not taught? in schools, like his whole core issues matrix and stuff. And so it wasn't so much of therapy, but sort of at that point, seeing how I could go further or, or whatever it might be. But there were also certain things at that time, like I was really tired. I was having all the strategies that I'd used in my life to sort of get things done and be successful weren't actually working as well. And so what I didn't know is basically my team, which all of his work is based on the the three ego states, which is the wounded child, adapted teen, and the functional adult. And so my teen was basically running my businesses and I was working more than I'd ever worked. I've never worked really more than two or three hours a day. It's about my max. And I was working way more than that. And I was trying to get up at 6am like I always had done. I was trying to just like, oh, let's work out of it. It's still the shit, like be really rigid. And it just wasn't working anymore. And basically my teenager was running my life and he maxed out. And that's what happens to a lot of entrepreneurs is they're at the, you know, they keep on using the, the strategies that used to work, stop working. So that's kind of where I was at. And then also the first mastermind I ever went to, John Carlton, copywriting legend, was like, yeah, you need a therapist. And I was like, okay, John. And then the second mastermind I went to, Tucker Max was there and he was like, yeah, you need to get a therapist. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so the funny thing is once I did, end up, you know, starting work with Brent, I ended up like tripling my income and getting back into the best shape of my life and doing all the stuff that actually matters to me. I sold my company, my e-commerce company that I had. He helped guide me through that sale. Nobody's asked that question in that way, but that I guess would be the reason. Why do you think that the same things that got you to one place don't serve you in the next chapter? Because they're built at a time when you are not, I mean, depending on you know, who you are, like a lot of, so higher functioning people tend to be more in the teen category and that's developed from basically seven to 17. And those things are still in there. So it works really well when you're like, a, the teen is like sort of white knuckling, like puffed up chest, like, oh, I'm just going to do a bunch of shit and I'm going to grind, I'm going to hustle. I'm going to like all the shit that I hate <laughs> entrepreneurs talking about. And so it just gets to the point where you're actually an adult. And, but mainly max out because your team doesn't know how to slow down and like let yourself off the hook and rest and sort of decompress and like take time to actually slow down. It's like very fast paced. And so for me, that just got to the point where it was just turning my wheels, turning my wheels without actually going anywhere. Now, the awareness of that problem in the first place, when did you start to become more self-aware? 
in a sense of issues like these. Cause most people, I mean, if something's always work, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And one and two fixing it, I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done. So it's almost like this self-feeding loop until you get off the hamster wheel. So I'd say I became pretty self-aware when I was like 19. I had a moment of Satori, which is like this glimpse into enlightenment, which I was just very lucky to that. I was meditating a lot of the time, but I literally walked out of the door at a party in Santa Cruz in California and the wind hit me and it just like washed over. And I had this just ridiculous bliss for about three months. I just like walked around like completely in the present, just like looking at leaves being like, oh my God, look at that leaf. What an incredible leaf. And like in this deep state of bliss. And then over time that wears off. And, but what had happened was it was almost like more like how monks can achieve certain states like that, but they're actually numb and it doesn't work in real life. The way that the monks meditate and do these things, it doesn't translate to normal people who own businesses and have families and kids and all these things. It's actually a very numb state. So my emotional awareness was pretty low because I had sort of shut out a lot of emotion, which when you shut out negative or, or darker emotions, there are no negative emotions. When you shut out the darker emotions, you also shut down your access to the more positive, but what people would label positive, but just the lighter emotions, things like passion, joy, love. So over time, I thought I was very self-aware. And then once you learn the matrix, you're kind of like, like the core issues matrix. It literally, it feels like the matrix where you get the red pill and you're like, oh, fuck. I was not seeing much of the world before as aware as I, I thought I was. But I was so unaware of my own patterns compared to what I thought. And I thought I was pretty aware. Yeah. Which is dangerous. The more aware you think you are, the more you may be blind to. The more aware you become, the more aware you become of the fact that you don't know that much. So what's your current state of awareness? Is it that do you feel like there's always going to be layers that need to be peeled off? And when do you know when you've had enough or you've got enough awareness for utility? Uh, well, enough awareness for utility is much different than I've definitely never been as aware of things as I am now. And there's still blocks that I'm unaware of. Like the yeah. work never stops. The idea that the work will be done one day is, is a very broken idea that's not even slightly true. It doesn't matter who you are. The work is always there. It's just the degree of triggering and emotional spikiness and like non-functional things that come from those like beliefs and patterns changes. So you, you're in a much more functional space and the changes that, you know, the blocks that you deal with Instead of it being like, oh, I shut down every time. Like when I get close to someone in a relationship, I pull away. And it's like making it impossible for you to stay in a relationship. It's stuff like one of the big blocks that I worked through like a month ago was about really easy money. So I realized that like, I've had a pretty good relationship to money. Like I teach how to get easy money. Like that's part of my thing is like how to not work very much and still make a lot. But I didn't realize that I had this block around really easy money like using affiliates to sell stuff and basically stuff that would take like an hour a week and add tens of thousands a month to my income and i thought that i was better than that so my team thought he was better than that like better than using like affiliates that sold shitty products and stuff and so after working through that block like all this money's opened up but that's like a much higher function like that's the stuff i work on now whereas before it would be like i'm falling asleep when i'm trying to film videos that's the degree of shit that was happening to me. Like I was trying to film videos for my water company and I literally would pass out. Like before we'd go film, I'd invite my camera guy over. And I'm like, yeah, I just got to chill in the hammock for like 10 minutes. 
and I'd fall asleep and send him home half the time because I so badly wanted to be perfect on camera that it was physically shutting me down. So like it's just degrees of function, I guess, at this point, like where the awareness comes in, like the awareness is of much more finite things. Whereas before it was just blocked to things that you're not even slightly aware of. So do you still have use for those teen states or those old states or as you're evolving yourself, do sort of your old identities also sort of fall by the wayside? When you actually do a correction and you get rid of a block, like it's gone. Sounds really crazy. And I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't done it so many times now, but the, um, the teen comes up, like even if you're in an incredibly uh, like aware place and you're functioning in the adult space, 40 or 50% of the time you're in a great spot. So my teen still perks up. My child wasn't too active. Like my teen was very active. But uh, it's not as functional as the functional adult. People have this sort of like idea when they learn about the child and the teen, like the teen is like, who can just push through everything and like keep going and work till midnight and do all that shit. And it's actually not as functional. It's just for short periods of time, it works until it doesn't. I, w- I wouldn't say that I find my teen very useful <laughs> anymore. I just can notice when he's coming up, like I'll be lifting weights and it's all right. Yeah, my knee's starting to hurt. Well, let's keep pushing. I said I'd finish this. Uh, no, it's like, well, what would you know, Ian in a year want me to do? He'd want you to stop and lift again tomorrow instead of getting injured. I used to get injured a lot because I would just push super hard. And so for periods of time, that worked really well. I'd get in super great shape and then injury. I couldn't step outside and say, actually, that's dumb. And not dumb because that's shaming your team, but like, hey, actually, like, let's slow down. Realistically, it's much better to lift again tomorrow and the next day and the next day than being injured for the next six weeks because you said you would do something. Yeah. When your old identities come up, how much of that is based on fear? It's a pretty broad question. I mean, and to say old identities, they're not, it's still part of you. Like, yeah. the child, you know, inside of you, like they're still there. Fear, it depends on the person. Everybody has different emotional, like there are only eight core emotions. You've got shame, guilt, pain, fear, and then you've got joy, passion, and love. So everything out like frustration, annoyance, those are all just different words for anger. You know, like but those are the eight core emotions are, are there and fear is definitely a big one that I think dominates a lot of people's lives. The easiest way to describe the child of a teen is inside every person is a part of us that's scared and a part of us that's trying to protect the part of us that's scared. Yeah. And the part of us that's scared is the child and the teen comes in to protect the child, basically. And so... There's a lot of fear in general, especially in our society. I think there's a ton of fear. But I think the biggest, and this is something actually that goes back to what you, you know, with stand-up. I wrote something probably like three or four weeks ago about fear. And it's like, fear is just an emotion. There's absolutely nothing wrong with fear. The idea of fearlessness is outrageous. There's zero chance you're ever going to be without fear. Fear itself is literally just an emotion. It's not good or bad. It's a darker emotion, but it's got all sorts of gifts with it, strength courage, but fear is not something you're ever going to get rid of. You can only change your response to it. And so what I've noticed in my own life is that that has been kind of the most common pattern is that fear doesn't really bother me, but people think that I don't feel it. Like I've had a lot of people say that to me, man, you're just so fearless. It's like, no, I I definitely get scared. And I just, since I was a kid, like whenever I get scared, I get really calm. I have a very weird response to fear. So when I've been in violent situations, I get very clear headed and calm. 
And the reason I started doing stand-up actually is because I'd gone skydiving and had literally zero fear and zero adrenaline. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? There's something broken. And I was like, I'm going to do some stand-up. And so I literally signed up and then I curled up in the fetal position on the floor of my apartment in San Diego and was like, what the fuck am I doing? And there's still like stand-up's the one thing that like gets my heart rate going before I go. And so it's like, for me, fear is just this beautiful compass. It's like, what am I really afraid? Like, especially when I feel a spike of it, if I'm like, oh, that's really scary. I'm like, all right, guess I got to do that. Yeah. So it's just the response. But a lot of people's patterns are fear-based. Why do you think stand-up makes you feel that way? Me specifically? Yeah. Well, so to start, to be really clear about it, actually, I had a ton of emotional stuff around stand-up. I, I started doing it like four years ago, and then I basically stopped for a year and a half. I didn't do any. And I felt so much guilt around it that I stopped watching stand-up because I felt so guilty that I wasn't doing it. And I had a lot of shame and guilt around it. And after working with Brent, that started to change. And I decided I was just going to tell the stories on stage that I already tell my friends about it. Some of my lines on stage, uh, one of the first things they say is like, there's nothing worse you can be in stand-up than an in-shape, reasonably good-looking white guy. There's nothing funny about healthy white people. And, and then it's like, you know, and, and then I talk about, I'm like, you know, most chubby guys would look at me and be like, oh, I wouldn't mind looking like him. And I'm like, when I see a chubby guy, I'm like, man, I want that comedy bod. Like that is such a sick comedy bot. And I started just owning my own realities of this. Like, and it's actually the same as copywriting, you know, it's entering the conversation in their head. So it's like people have all these snap judgments of who they think you are the second they see you. And people that I don't look like a person who would do stand up. And like, you can't be white and in shape. It's just like, it's not allowed. You can be any other <laughs> and in shape for stand up and it's fine. But if you're white and in shape, like, really, hey, fuck you. And so, I kind of deal with that, but the fear has changed, but I do still get that adrenaline leading up to it. And I think the original reason is because there's nothing else you have to learn and just publicly be willing to fail to do it. Like as a writer, you can write something, it can suck and you don't release it. When it's stand up, like you go out there and you are exposed, you are completely exposed in front of these people. And you're also like, at least for me, since I do more storytelling, like what you've decided is you basically go, Hey, you remember that embarrassing story that I never thought I'd tell a single human being? I'm going to go tell that in front of a room of strangers. Mm. Like the easiest way to do stand-up is to just take the most embarrassing moments of your life and just put them on public display. But it's really the reason it's been so much fear for me is because it's what I think I'm supposed to do with my life. And I think there's no greater fear than becoming who you are. And that's who I am. Like literally the correction I'm working on right now is with my child, which is, what if this all works? What if I actually succeed in all these things? And so it goes back and I just wrote it out. And it's like, it goes back to the fact that like when I was in fourth grade, I was the only kid in my school with a 4.0. I was the fastest kid in the school. I was the best athlete. And my friends started making fun of me. They like, they call me 4.0 with no common sense. And I remember going home to my mom and being like, Hey mom, do I not have any common sense? Like, you know, what's the deal here? And she actually told me the story of me being on that cruise with them. And I was like seven and she was like, well, no, you were with Marshall and you guys couldn't find us. But you were like, you know what? I know how to find them if we go back to the room first, cause I could find them from there. And she like told me the story and I was like, I always use that to like validate it. And she was like, 
they're saying that because they're jealous of you and they're angry. But the thing is, is so there's still this thing inside me of like, well, if I go succeed, kids, you know, people are going to be mean to me because they're angry and feel bad about themselves because I'm doing well. And things always came easy for me. Like, I don't say any of this out of arrogance. Like, this has been my biggest block is the fact that everything in my life came pretty easily. I was, you know, a very good athlete. And then I had all, all the pressure around tennis, you know, supposed to win Wimbledon from age three and all that shit. And, you know, I won a national championship in college, but I fucking hated every second of it. And so it's uh, <clears throat> the biggest fear still goes down to that of basically being shamed for being good at stuff. So it still goes back to that of like, well, what if I am a famous comedian? And my life continues to get better. And better. like, it's already pretty remarkable, to be honest. It's like, well, what if it keeps getting better? It's like, well, how will other people react? It has nothing to do with me. If people get angry at me or they feel offended by my success, it has nothing to do with me. But I can logically understand that, like as an adult. But if my child and my teen believes otherwise, it doesn't matter because that shit's so deeply rooted. So thanks for sharing that, by the way. And you said to yourself, I have a pretty good life. I've got a great life. Like by conventional means, you're doing pretty well, right? When someone's in that situation or that that environment, why would people want to put themselves through pain of growth or why, like like experiencing that, right? Like that's not a comfortable feeling. So, you know, what's the point and what's the purpose behind putting yourself through pain like that? Well, pain is typically linked to growth. I mean, it's there's not a lot of growth without some form of pain, whether it's low grade or whatever it is. But actually back to the thing that I wrote before is that what I literally started the post with was fear is not a reason not to do things. Yeah. And the reason I wrote it was actually because somebody was going to come to Lionheart and they, they'd been like on the fence. And this is a very successful person who's done a lot. Like, I mean, we're talking like, you know, nine figure CEO and like done all this shit. And I'm like, what is going on? And it's fear of finding out that there's stuff that they don't know exists. And so I think for a lot of people, they don't do this work because it's scary until they meet enough people who've gone and they're like, okay, yeah, I guess I got to go. But some people aren't used to discomfort. And it's like, for me, my motto has been like, when you get comfortable with discomfort, discomfort itself disappears. Yeah. I think that most people's fear response is to shut off. That's a human, that's a human reaction. I mean, literally there's flight, fight or freeze and most people freeze and very few people fight. I mean, we're talking about a percent of a percent of the population who actually has an ingrained fear response of dealing with fear. And so what it is, is partially you're not aware of what you're not aware of. Yeah. So you don't know what's possible until you start to feel it. And I would have told you a year and a half ago that I was like real happy and my life was really great. And like on the outside, it was like, it was great. But until I worked through this stuff, like I couldn't even have known that there was this, like this level of contentment and fulfillment. I had no idea that it could be this deep, like to the point of gratitude where it's like, people always talk about gratitude, but feeling it is a completely different thing mm -hmm. uh, where it's like, I can't, I really feel incredibly lucky, especially being around Brent. I mean, Brent's like the Michael Jordan of fixing people's shit. The most people have ever gotten to be around him is twice a year. And I'm getting to be around him. He's literally in my studio in the back right now. Like he's, we just ran a workshop and I get to be around him all the time. My growth has been accelerated dramatically through that. Like, and I think most people do when they actually take a minute to look, find that there is something missing. But the problem is, especially with the entrepreneurial driven types, 
is that they never slow down enough to find out what's going on. Like, mm-hmm. not to poo him, yeah. but like, look at somebody like Gary Vee. That guy's not happy. He talks about how happy he is. And he's, he, he's aging rapidly. He looks like he's 65 now. And all he does is, is do stuff. Like, it's cheesy, but it's like, you know, you're a human being, not a human doing. And that's all I did my whole life was I did shit. I did shit to be seen without knowing that that was basically, my life was basically all about accomplishing another thing in order to be seen. You know, let me become this successful entrepreneur. Let me make sure I'm in the best shape. Let me be a professional athlete. Let me do like all these things have to be like, you just keep thinking it's this imaginary resume in your head of like, well, how will people describe me if I'm not in the room? What, you know, how great am I? And until you actually fucking slow down and stop doing stuff, you know, if you keep just, if every day you have so much on your to-do list and so many tasks that you're constantly moving, how can you ever find out that something's not quite right? The biggest thing is this validation box, you know, that people... Phones, yeah. It's this thing that people... There's so much dopamine release happening every time you check something and there's these little validations of like, oh, I got this many likes, this many followers, all these things. And so even the times when nothing's going on, suddenly somebody's bored and they're on their phone the whole time trying to... Like, I've literally... I'll do it because sometimes I find myself looking at my phone when nothing's going on and I literally sort of as a, as a joke, will say to my phone, like, make me feel better. Like, this is what people are literally thinking when they're looking at their phone. They're saying, hey, make me feel better. There's not enough happening right now. Please give me an app to open or a thing to click and make me <laughs> release some dopamine so that I can feel a little better. And so it's like, whenever I say that, it's, you know, it's like, which wolf am I feeding right now? It's like, it's the bad wolf. I'm putting my phone down. So that's a little rant on that. But yeah, I mean, I think people are so distracted that they're unaware of how they actually feel. Tell me about your tattoo, actually. Feed the wolf. You brought oh, that up. This? Yeah. Wolf? You want to say, present? He's sitting right here. Hey, bud. Yeah, I'm going to have to just pull my camera down. Hey, buddy. Come here. So for everyone listening via audio, we're looking at... Uh, this is beside The Brad Pitt of dogs. Brad Pitt of dogs. I can vouch for it. Yeah, I mean, well, the shorter story is that that little guy was supposed to die when he was, uh, I know this is going to get emotional when I'm having to tell the story with him right here. But, uh, like three days after I got him, this is the shorter version of the story. Basically he, uh, he went to the hospital or I had to take him into the vet. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't walk. He hadn't eaten. And so I took him into the vet. They gave him a blood transfusion. He was three pounds at the time. He was a three pound Husky. They gave him a blood transfusion. And then when I got back to the vet, they said he had about a 20% chance of living. And he was all wrapped up in a blanket. He couldn't open his eyes. He couldn't see. He had a little like thing injected into his body. And they said, I got to take him to the hospital. So my friend drove and I held him in my arms, hoping he wasn't going to die on the way. I got to the animal hospital. And the first thing that I heard when I got in there was the woman on the phone saying, how would you like me to deliver his ashes? Oh, my God. Well, Jesus Christ, like that's the last thing I want to hear when I got this dying puppy in my arms. So over the next few days, he was in there. He still hadn't eaten anything and they were doing all these tests. They couldn't figure out what had happened or what was going on. And he, he just kept like getting smaller. He was like two pounds. And then I came in one day and he was like, I was going in every day. And then he was, he looked bigger and I was like, oh, he's bigger. Like, is he gaining weight? Is he like, like, no, that's, 
edema swelling in his brain and in his body. It was all fluid buildup. After like four more days, like seven days in, he finally, he ate a bite of chicken, like whole chicken. And they sent me this video of him eating it. And I was out at, I remember I was out at sushi with some people and I had gotten sick during the time that he was in there, which I never got sick at the time. I was like throwing up and had all this stomach pain. And but so basically during the time that he was in there, there was a moment I was walking back to my apartment and I just kept thinking about what if he dies? And I just like, you know, I'd already done like the second day I got him, we were filming stuff like with him in the videos. And like, everybody already knows I have him. They know he exists. And I just like stopped while I was walking. It hit me. And it was like, it went back to tennis in a big way of like, when I would be playing tennis, I would always be thinking, well, what if I lose? What am I going to tell my parents? What am I going to tell my friends and my teammates? And like winners don't think that winners think if they're down, they think, how am I going to come back? And how's it going to feel to win? With Poseidon, I literally was like, why do I keep thinking about what I'm going to do if he dies? Why don't I just think about what I'm going to do when he gets back home and how that's going to feel? And it was really the, you know, the two wolves, which is, you know, the old story is the Native American grandfather's talking to his grandson. And he says inside each of us, the battle between two wolves. One wolf is joy, love, compassion. That's the good wolf. The other wolf is hatred, sorrow, remorse. That's the bad wolf. And the grandson asked, which wolf wins? This is the one you feed. But she, as I was walking along and I'd like stopped walking, I was like, when he lives, I'm going to get the tattoo of feed the wolf on my forearm to remind me to feed the good wolf in my mind and, you know, continue to have those better thoughts. And then also to remember to feed my fucking dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I love that. That's great. Yeah, so he ended up basically, he ate some chicken. They sent me this like email and I saw it and I just started like crying at this sushi restaurant. And then uh, I took him out. They were like, there's no guarantees he's going to make it, but we can't do anything for him. Yeah, so I basically syringe fed him every four hours or cooked him little boiled chicken and like fed him. And like three days later, he was sort of back to normal and no issues since. So I love it, man. That's so. awesome. Now, Dude, that's just great. And I love that he's right there. <laughs> that makes it even, makes it even better. Now, I love the Feed the Wolf one thing. is just a, an amazing concept in general. Now, when you take that idea, though, of feeding one of the wolves, uh, and then you have other emotions that weren't captured in the wolves, like whether it's pain, forgiveness, acceptance, suffering, these things that we might actually need to experience to grow, how do you sort of view those emotions when you've got a binary system of, of sort of processing? That's a really good question. Um, and it's something that I've delved into for a while because I'd actually started writing a book called Feed the Wolf before I went to Brent. And then I realized how much of it was basically team-based. And it was like, do this, do that, feed the good wolf. Da -da. And it was actually kind of bullshit because it wouldn't have been acknowledging your actual emotions and how you feel and, and dealing with the world as it is. So over time, it's changed what that means to me. Because like I said, again, there aren't bad emotions. There's no negative emotions. There's only darker and lighter. And it's our attachment to them that we think something is bad. Like pain is not bad. You can actually feel good while you're in pain. You can be excited while you're experiencing fear. These things aren't inherently bad. It's just your, like, your attachment to them. With the two wolves, I've like dealt with it a lot of like, what does this mean to me now? And like for me, though, I literally see two wolves like in front of like at my feet, like there's the good wolf and the bad wolf. I literally will toss meat with my left hand, like imaginary meat to the good wolf when I do stuff to actually like create a dopamine feedback loop. 
but it's become much simpler actually to me in every moment you have two choices that's it you can either resist or you can surrender you either resist what's happening and that this moment is in fact this moment and it's the only moment it could ever be because if it could have been something else it would have been or you can completely surrender to the fact that this is exactly what's supposed to be happening and that this is your reality so for me the bad wolf is resisting this moment and the good wolf is surrendering and people misinterpret surrendering they think of it as weakness like oh surrender you know in war or something surrendering is sometimes surrendering could be like wow i really don't like this person at all and i don't have to be around them yep i'm going to leave i'm surrendering to the reality that i have no desire to be around this person whereas if you keep sticking with some person you don't want to be around or a friend or a significant other or whatever and you're like resisting the fact that you in fact don't want to be with them or whatever it is i mean also just down to the littlest moments of like getting cut off in traffic and you're like, Oh, fuck you. And sometimes they let it out. Like, yeah, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> and then you go, ah, that's, happened. that's okay. So it's actually almost more binary, but it's on a much different level of like resisting would be like, I'm starting to feel pain. I don't want to feel this. I'm going to go play a video game or drink or do something like that. It's like surrendering would be, wow, I'm having some pain come up that's okay. Why don't I let this emotion come through and see what actually happens? And the funny thing is when you let go of being so resistant to the emotion, it actually ends up passing. It's almost like medicine. Yeah, it is. That is literally what emotions are. Like that is like pain is medicine. It's healing. Like when you're crying out of, you can cry out of joy. Like it's just, it's medicine. It's like a, it's a release. It's a way of your body physically allowing certain things to pass through and the problem the reason why people get so fucked up and sick and screwed up is because they literally store all these emotions in their body because they're not letting them go they're so attached to them and they're so like or they're shoving them down that's what i did i basically only experienced joy and some passion and love and like had shut off pain completely after because i got mugged when i was 15 that was like my big defining moment so it's like i shut off that completely because i didn't want to ever feel pain and then fear was something i just had to go and kill it and like you know and anger wasn't okay because i was always angry on the tennis court so then it's like why don't i ever get angry off the court and so if i'm angry i'm a bad person it's like no none of those things are bad they're just emotions and it doesn't mean like you can't control your thoughts or your emotions people try and think they can do all that you can't you're you're a human yeah the only thing you can control is your attitude so for me it's like yeah sometimes you're going to have shitty thoughts and you know darker emotions pass through it doesn't mean you have to behave like an asshole yeah and that's where i love the idea of the two wolves down by your feet or in front of you i think that sounds so much more powerful now that i've heard you explain it just because it's almost not even a, like an attitude it's almost like the lens you choose to view life through and it doesn't necessarily mean you're not embracing pain or you're not against feeling discomfort you're just choosing to view it through a lens how often do you upgrade your lenses and how often do they sometimes conflict where you feel like, have you experienced a place where honestly you feel like just feeding both wolves and, uh, and how does that usually play out? Yeah, of course. There are times I feed the bad wolf. I'm a person, right? So I don't expect perfection out of myself, but it's more of a commitment that I've made. What do I actually want in this moment or what do I want later? It's really a delayed gratification method in a way. 
you know, the number one indicator of your success is your ability to delay gratification. And then the second thing, which is almost just as important is your ability to intervene with yourself before you fuck shit up, basically your ability to deal with self-sabotage. And so before Brent, like I was aware of my self-sabotage, like incredibly aware of it because I had gone through a lot with it and, but there was no way to work through it still. Now I can actually work through it. But I would say that the, um, like within the lens of those two wolves, it's like in the moments, a lot of it's the little things like, Oh, my shirt dropped on the floor in my closet. I don't want to pick it up right now. And then I go, well, which wolf? And it's all the little decisions in life that really build up to the big, it's really easy to feed the good wolf and the big decisions. I feel like it's like, Oh, which college do I want to go to? Which, what should I say to this person? It's like those little things where you build the discipline of like, really building the habits of feeding the good wolf. It's those little things that are so much harder for me at least, but it's those little things that build up and they're sort of a microcosm of your life. It's like this ripple out into everything else you do as far as like upgrading it. I mean, I feel like that's what doing corrections and like getting rid of the blocks. That's what happens every time is I'm getting rid of this blind spot that's been like literally an obstacle. And so like the, the best way I guess to describe it is we all have these obstacles Right. And what most people do and what most like training, like NLP and not to, you know, not to put it down or anything, but like a lot of these different works, you move around the obstacle. You just go around and then at some point you unconsciously U-turn, you end up coming back and you run into the obstacle again. And sometimes it just looks different instead of being in your personal relationship, it's in your business partner and, or it's in suddenly you start eating food or all these different things. And so the motto that we have is if it's in the way, it is the way. If the block's there, you go through it, not around it. And that's how you actually resolve it. And so most things are just like, well, if you think about it this way, if you actually reframe it in a positive way, it's like, no, that's bullshit. I've always felt like, you know, even when I think about my own life, I don't like to think of my life in like business. I try to separate out and look at my life in as many different categories as possible. Because if I feel like I can look at my life from that varied of a viewpoint, I can start to recognize those patterns when they show up. Cause you're right. When one path or one obstacle shows up, likely that obstacle is going to show up in just about every part of your life. It'll just manifest at a different time under a different set of circumstances. But the way you approach one thing is how you approach everything. And so how do you start to connect the dots between an obstacle you see, let's say in your food or in your diet to something you might be experiencing in wealth or business. Like that's such a hard connection for most people to make. How do you start to connect those dots? For me, I guess I've literally, this has been my work for a while. Like I read the big leap, which is all about self-sabotage. It's a great book, but again, it doesn't actually really give you quite the answer of how to get rid of self-sabotage. But I became so acutely aware that I would just see it sort of all over the place. And what happens is when I start to do something that maybe would be not as positive a behavior or whatever it is, I will ask myself, and I, it's really, it's easy with other people because I'll do this, but I'll ask myself like, where are things going really well right now? And so I'll do this with friends. They'll be like, yeah, man, I just fucking, I can't stand my girlfriend right now. I think I'm going to end the relationship and stuff. And I'll go, okay. Like, and sometimes they're absolutely right. And they need to. And you're like, yeah, dude, finally. <laughs> and then <laughs> But I'll ask them, I'll say, oh, yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, how's your business doing right now? And they'll go, oh, it's going well. I'm like, like, how well? Like, actually, it's going really well. We just had our biggest month we've ever had. And I'm like, yeah, 
So you're causing fights with your girlfriend because you're uncomfortable with the level of success that you're having in your life right now. The, the linchpin issue of everything we go to, the four core issues are worth, safety, perfection, and needs. We all deal with them, every human. But worth is the ultimate like linchpin issue that sort of informs our entire life. And it's not conscious, typically, but what's happening is you're starting to raise to this level of like, oh my God, look at all the success. You're uncomfortable with it. And so you have to fuck up some other area of your life to bring yourself back to a level of actual comfort. You're like, okay, all of this is going really well in my business. Let me mess up my relationship so that I feel okay. Or so that I feel where I feel like I'm, my worth is. Like people don't get what they deserve in life. They get what they believe they deserve. And it's not conscious. They're not like, I don't deserve to be happy. But some part of them does not believe in what's happening. So it's the same thing, dude. You see it in athletes all the time. Like there's a guy, Daniel Sturridge, plays for Liverpool. Whenever he starts playing really well, he gets injured. And we're talking like an injury that's like a pulled hamstring or something weird and kind of like vague. Or not even like a knock, which is like a soccer term for like an injury. And you're like, yeah, what's happening is he's really uncomfortable with how well he's playing. You see that in athletes all the time. The ones that continue to succeed, like the Roger Federer's of the world, have a way of dealing with, they don't feel uncomfortable with their success. How do you reverse that story to actually have it serve you? Well, I think that's kind of the illusion in a lot of things is that you can just rewire a story like that it's to serve you. Like pretty much you have to deal with where it came from. Like where did this belief come from? And then work with your child, the teen on sort of how to actually remove it, which is literally, I mean, we have three days of build up before we even teach a correction process because it requires a lot of understanding, but there are, simple ways to go through that. But I mean, the first step is awareness, but then you do need application, which is why I believe so heavily in what we do and what Brent's created. Man, it's so unconscious. <laughs> I mean, I literally had this, I was telling you about the money thing. Like I didn't realize that I thought I was better than these people. <laughs> like, like, I mean, that's literally what I, because yeah. I was, I'm an ethical marketer, right? I've never sold anything that I don't believe in. And I used to say like, I've, I've stepped over a bunch of dollar bills to pick up pennies. But those pennies now over my career have turned into 5 and $10 bills. So I've never once overstepped my boundaries of my moral code on what I'm willing to sell. The thing is, is that actually allows me to keep money because a lot of my friends, I don't know if you know anybody who's like, I'm sure yeah. you do, like sold shitty products, yep. they pay a lot of money. They don't tend to have much money. What they do, those are the guys who go blow it on bottle service. Literally, they go to the casino, they go do a bunch of Coke. They literally don't feel comfortable with how they're making their money. So they find ways to not keep it. And that's a worth thing. They think that they are less than. They don't think they deserve that money. I mean, like the shit is rampant. <laughs> yeah. But that's really what a lot of this stuff comes down to is your worth. And like people can have high self-esteem and have worth. But in certain areas, like there's a big one is working hard. They think that they have to work really hard for money. Sometimes it's because it makes them feel like they're better than other people because they worked hard. And a lot of the times it's because they're trying to be perfect. Like, I got to be perfect. I got to work 90 hours a week. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's not true. Like, but that all goes down to your childhood. And like, did you get paid to do your chores? If you got paid to do chores, it literally was wiring into your system that you have to do shit you don't want to do to get money. Oh, wow, dude. That is, that's really powerful. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that's one of those aha uh -huh, holy shit yeah oh my god 
It's almost, I'm a big survival theorist. I think that anything we do now is like, it's been done 60,000 years ago. And I think that we've evolved as human beings a lot slower than our brains probably have. And what's really cool is I'm starting to see patterns with that same theory, but from almost a child standpoint, it's like, you don't have to go 60,000 years back. You can just go back to where you were anywhere from zero to six years old, explore those experiences, those realities, and you can probably find every piece of emotional pain and that's been blocking and holding you back, just hidden somewhere in there. Yeah. Well, from zero to 17, really. It's all there. Like I didn't fully understand it for a while until I started to see that each one of our blocks does correlate to something that happened. And it's not about like, oh, your parents were dicks and you know, let's blame them. I mean, the reality is every parent didn't meet the needs of their child. It's literally impossible to do. And anything less than nurturing is abuse. It doesn't mean it's physical. It doesn't mean whatever. Like I had a very traditionally good childhood. I have two intelligent parents who are literally the best athletes in the world for their age, what they do, who like loved me and shit. But there was a lot of pressure and the pressure was my abuse. And some kids got the shit beat out of them with a spoon. And now they have eating issues because of that. Like there's all these little crazy things. And so it's been fascinating around money too. Cause I, I was at, I was the one who realized the chore thing, which normally Brent's the one who's going to have the brilliant ideas, but it's like, I've been looking at like, cause we just did this. We just released the money thing. I've been like really just super into it and like really curious about it all. And looking back at like why I've had a pretty good relationship to money. I was sitting with a guy who, uh, and I know this is a bit of a tangent, but it's, it's pretty interesting. So I can tell, but it's like my friend, uh, was there who he lived on a farm. His dad was a farm and they, he started working at 12, like working hard at 12. I was like, man, at 12, I started stringing tennis rackets and I got paid $25 a racket. Most people do it in 30 minutes. I got to the point where I could do a racket in 16 minutes. But realistically, I could do two in an hour. So at 12 years old, I could make $50 an hour. And so I immediately learned at a young age that time had nothing to do with money. Yep. And I could just make it. Then I realized I'm like, all these kids were doing lemonade stands and shit, right? So we would do them and most kids would make like $15, $20 at a lemonade stand. What I did is first off, I would run into the backyard of uh, neighbors across the ravine who had a massive lemon patch with like two Rottweilers that were there to eat the people that went in. I would be <laughs> I literally remember going in, stealing lemons, getting chased by two Rottweilers, sprinting and jumping a fence with these fucking lemons. And like, cause I'm like, what am I going to go pay for lemons? You know? And so we'd make lemonade and shit. And then my grandma would make cookies and I would go get all the golf balls off the golf course. I'd go into the lake, I'd go into the bushes and I'd get all the golf balls and shit. And so where everybody else was setting up their lemonade stand and making 15 to 20 bucks, I set mine up with my buddy on the edge of the, the golf course and on a street. And so we would sell lemonade and cookies. So I'd upsell them into the cookies. And then I would give them the golf balls. I would charge them for the golf balls that they probably lost earlier. And I'd be like, look, man, let's be honest. You're probably going to miss a couple more shots. Oh my God. I mean, so like, but we made $63 that day. I remember. So, but it's really weird. Cause I never thought of those as like defining moments that are changing my relationship to money. And now I'm looking at it going, I literally learned how to create a higher average order value when I was like 10. And like, I had this relationship to money that's been different. And so, and then I have my own stuff around it. Absolutely. Like that I'm still working through, but it's really interesting looking at how pretty much everything that's going on comes from some sort of event. It's, it's amazing. And the clarity you get when you make those aha connections is like 
mind blowing because it connects to every single thing you do. And it's just like overbearing the amount of awareness you get when you make one, even one distinction. So I want to talk about Lionheart now. Tell me about the event because this sounds amazing. If you were not this clear uh, when I met you like a year ago, you were just an asshole, to be honest. Um, and now you're just a really woke asshole. And so, <laughs> so now I will tell me more about Lionheart. Fill me in on the, the Cliff Note version and who it's for and how we get involved. Well, it's really funny that you say that because we literally have testimonials of people at the workshop who are like, yeah, I used to just think Ian was this douche bro and <laughs> really like him. And like, like literally that was like a word for word thing. And then like, and I actually like, I really enjoyed being around him. I did not know he was like this. And it's like, well, I actually wasn't like this. I was dealing with all my own shit that I wasn't even aware of. And so and we have multiple people. This guy's like, yeah, when I met Ian, I just thought he was kind of like closed off and hot shit and whatever. And now I'm like, I really like being around and like, I enjoy it. And I don't say that again, like now to be like, Oh, I'm great. It's just really funny. Cause a lot of people had the same experience you did. Mm. Um, and so yeah, things have changed dramatically, man. It's uh, it's funny, but so I mean, basically the way that the actual workshops work is you come in, we have like a little process we go through at the beginning to sort of get the group feeling comfortable. Like it's a very important place to create a container where people feel like they can express themselves fully. And then I teach the second self, which is the meditation visualization process, but basically accessing almost it started as an alter ego, but it's basically this deeper part of yourself to get into a flow state. So I originally created it for writers and writer's block, and it ends up that it works to help set intentions for your day and people get these deep insights. And then we go through the core issues matrix, which is basically the child, teen, adult framework with the four core issues of worth, safety, perfection, needs. And then the second day we go through basically the eight core emotions and what those feelings mean and how they affect your life. And then we have this experiential exercise people do that really like, that's kind of a big moment of opening up for people and people get shit with like, I can't even believe that that's so accurate and that it's like affecting my life. Uh, and then the third day is where we do boundaries and then we do corrections and corrections are like the differentiating piece of why Brent stuff. What like Brent built a, business, his coaching business without literally, he's never spent a single dollar on advertising and his wait list is out seven months now. And it's $45,000 a year. It's because it works that well that people just share it and corrections are the piece that like you take all this awareness and now you actually move the blocks out of the way. And so that's on day three, but you literally need the buildup of understanding these other things in order to do it. Which is why we actually just, we've got the core course, which is like basically the workshop for at home coming out, I think at the end of this week, which whatever the date is now, it's like October 8th or 9th or whatever, that'll be out soon, which is exciting because not everybody has to travel to Austin to do it. Okay. Give me a link and we'll put it in the show notes and everything for everybody. Yeah, guys, if you guys obviously, well, I can vouch for just how much of an asshole Ian was and how much of one he's not now. So if that's proof enough, but if any of the concepts resonated with you on this episode, uh, feel free to to check it out. We'll, we'll get all the resources available. I'm actually really intrigued myself. Yeah, you should come out in December. Yeah. December 17th, yeah. next one. Come yeah. out here. I'm super intrigued. But uh, Ian, dude, thank you so much for making the time, man. I've got one last question for you. And that is, in the midst of all of these transformations, realizations, ahas, and how much you still have yet to grow, how do you stay grounded? That's a really good question. I would say that 
the biggest thing that I realize is as life keeps getting seemingly better and better, um, I have these thoughts into the future of like what my life will be like. And it's much bigger than it even is now. Not that mine's like this incredible thing now, but just like it, I do feel very good pretty much most of the time. And I'm like, it's not going to be better. It's just going to be different. That's the biggest thing that keeps me here. And also the biggest thing about worth and that whole core issue is that when you're in the functional adult state, you're equal to, and you realize that all humans have inherently equal value and people are just expressing it in different ways. And really going through this dude and seeing people's shit basically and finding out that everybody has shit. I mean, we're talking about the guy with a hundred million dollar a year business and the person making $2,000 a month and the person with the great wife and the person that's never, you know, has nobody in their life. Like you realize that everybody has their own stuff and that it all came from things that are pretty much out of their control. It gives you a deep sense of empathy. Like when you see somebody being an asshole or they're being angry or they look super sad at these things, you, you know, you realize that, it's not their fault and that they're trying their best. Everybody is. And so I, knowing that I'm not better than anyone is probably one of the most having that sort of firmly rooted feeling about people's worth and feeling like we're all equals is probably the biggest thing to make me realize. I had this realization that uh, the greatest gift of being a human is the gift of imperfection. And God or the gods or the universe, whatever it is, you know, they don't have that luxury of making mistakes. Uh, we do. So I, I relish in how many mistakes I get to make. Dude, I love that. And that's a perfect wrap to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. Ian, thanks so much, man, again, for just dropping the bombs, bringing Poseidon on the show, and in general, just sharing a very lighthearted view to this entire space that can be pretty deep, heavy, and, and emotional. So I appreciate that. Thanks, that man. Fun, man. Yeah. So anyways, guys, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I am your host, Raj. This is your friend, Ian. And from us, Stay Grounded. We'll chat soon. Later on. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.